This is Bernard Baruch with IntuitEcon, um, here with Rishi and Vishal, and we're going to be discussing liquidity bubbles, which I think is uh, it's a good topic in our opinion. I think that these are already popping up, and I think that they're going to be increasingly important. Um, this is all in line so far with our second tech bubble thesis. Um, having other bubbles in financial markets, um, I think plays into the idea that this is the kind of environment where you see excesses, excessive risk-taking, uh, less consideration for valuations, um, just generally investors on the whole um, being more uh, risky with their money uh, to the point that I think a, a fair number, although a minority, are, are realistically gambling. Um, I think that this is the environment that we're in, and increasingly so. But I'll go ahead and pause there and give it over to you guys to share your thoughts on the article and let me know how you want to proceed. Sure. So I think this topic is specifically relevant right now because um, the main markets have been in a bull market since, since basically 2009, but then that's really accelerated since the pandemic, uh, since March 2020. And it's got a lot of people both concerned and excited about the like rapid acceleration in asset prices generally. So basically right now, asset prices are quite a bit higher on average than they were five years ago, a decade ago, even more, more time. And so this is leading a lot of people to, to really start to question, are the main markets in a bubble? Are innovation strategies in a bubble? And it's because what a lot of people are looking at is these, these rapid run-ups in prices that we've seen over the last year and a half. And so this is particular, particularly interesting to analyze because there's actually a lot that goes into, into bubbles, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, and it's not just simply a rapid run up in prices. There's many factors and that, that definition or that understanding of the factors that lead to a bubble has evolved over time and has evolved through, through different thinkers and different you know, great investors, which we, we will discuss now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so feel free to jump into that initial article on financial bubbles. I think that'd be a good place to start. We can hit that point by point, but maybe just run through the top, like the, the, the six steps, and then we can take those point by point. First off, the one that people are mostly familiar with is the evidence of a continuous run up in prices that obviously has to be a factor that you have to look at when you're determining whether uh, current price action is in a bubble that's the first step that you need to uh, assess and then the second step uh, in this article is evidence of whether or not there is a regime change regime changes are important because they heavily influence what intrinsic valuations are for a stock so if there is a regime change taking place, then the way in which we value these companies is going to change completely. So you have to tell whether or not there is a regime change or any sizable change in how the market is functioning or how people are behaving in general. And then once you've determined whether or not there's a regime change, 
you have to be able to define the fundamentals, essentially how you're going to be valuing these companies. Are you going to look at the PE ratios? Are you going to look at price to sales um, ratios? Like how exactly are you going to see these ratios and what's, what's going to be the way you assess them? Fourthly, you have to see if there's evidence of divergence from those fundamentals. Like are the prices running up to a point where like they no longer represent the intrinsic value of these companies. You have to see if that's actually happening. And finally, like this is even more developed, but you have to pay attention to the narrative that's being put out there in the news or talk in the market. Like, is this narrative a self-reinforcing narrative? Essentially, um, are people gonna be like, is there gonna be like somewhat of a domino effect once this narrative is loud in the media are people going to be for example buying more of this share because now suddenly everybody's believing it and now they're just following the trend so you have to look at that and then the final and probably one of the most overlooked um factors in my opinion is whether or not the prices that uh, we've ballooned to are actually going to reflect uh i'm sorry are actually uh reasonable or not in the sense that like they can uh, if we see these prices, are we going to think, okay, is is this an irrational um, increase in prices now? Is it now going to be impossible to justify these prices? I mean, for example, Amazon and Google did run up to heavy valuations, but in some way they did manage to grow to a size and provide such a huge value that in a way they, the prices did end up becoming justified because they became companies that offered that level of value. They were no longer just tech companies, uh, quote unquote, or growth companies, but they became utility companies that provide such an essential service. So if we see that there is justification for those current prices, and we imagine that we'll get to that level in the future, it's not, we can't say that there's a bubble. So these are the six different factors that we have to look into when determining whether or not there's a bubble. And in my opinion, it's a fantastic guideline. If you're new to investing and you need to start understanding these intricacies, look at this article and really just run the events by this checklist. And then you can get an understanding of whether or not you're in a bubble. Well, um, this is a uh, really challenging topic um, there are several reasons why, but one is that bubbles just aren't very frequent. Uh, because they're not frequent, it's very hard to apply any sort of real rigor to determining, you know, the true characteristics that you can use to forecast a bubble. So that that's uh, leading off with the Fama French versus um, Robert Schiller discussion, I think is uh, quite humorous. And they're both winning the Nobel Prize for the same reason, but for opposite, uh, yep. opposite thesis. Um, and Fama was basically saying, "Look, I'll 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 take you up on this bet. If you can forecast the next ten bubbles, then maybe, maybe mm -hmm. I'll start to believe you." <laughs> of course, Robert Schiller, he's looking at this and he's like, "Okay, well, if I live that long, I can do it." <laughs> and then a year later, he tries to do it. Uh, I think it was. Uh, was it 2016? 2015, uh, tried and failed. Yeah, he tried and failed twice, and almost immediately. He was saying that oil prices at $50 were like in a reverse bubble, and then they plummeted down to 30. Exactly. 
he was saying that valuations in the U.S. relative to Europe were in a bubble. And then that just got even more extended over the last like six years. Um, that's another thing too, is that bubbles tend to be a longer duration play, right? And by that, I don't mean interest rate risk. I mean like time to maturity. So we did a bunch of work on bubbles before and in our first tech bubble thesis, essentially just going through the history of a bunch of bubbles and looking at the timeframes that was quite useful, by the way, in the call recently on the breakout, because a lot of this hinged on the historical fact, but you just don't have bubbles, you know, that last only like a few months. Like it takes, it takes longer for that build to happen. And they certainly don't happen over the course of four months and then completely go back to prices that they were at four months prior uh, uh, as part of a bubble. I would just say that that's like very volatile market. Um, and so given that there are all these different opinions about bubbles, um, Robert Schiller's put out there is like the, the king or the, what we call him, the master of bubbles. Cause he wrote two books about him, one dot com bubble, and then a, a, a rational exuberance one, a rational exuberance two. But the thesis I think is rather flawed because it's, it's, it can be applied to so many things. It's like, okay, price goes up a lot and a whole lot of people are excited about buying it. And what does that apply to? Like a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, the fangs are a really good example, but there, there are tons of examples. I mean, Bitcoin's another one, right? Just crypto generally. Um, But if you don't like six steps, you can just skip to step, uh, step six. Everything else is a lead up to step six. Because at the end of the day, if you can't justify the price with any reasonable future scenario, it's a bubble. Yep. But the first five steps are useful because people throw around this word bubble like all the time. Bubble, bubble, bubble. Like basically if a stock went up that you wish you bought, it's in a bubble now. Right. There's some false positives about people claiming something to be a bubble. Um, many people trying to sound smart about it, but but as you said, there really haven't been that many bubbles um, in history. And it's interesting because one, one of the most common narratives right now is that ARKK and the ARK funds are are in a bubble. But then if we actually try and go through and dissect the different steps that we've mentioned and apply it to the ARC funds or to even more specifically some of the technologies in, technologies in the ARC funds, we can see that it just simply isn't true. So for example, um, we'll just go into step six. We confirm that no reasonable, reasonable future outcome can justify the current price. If we look at say the 3D printing space and we add up all the market caps of all the 3D printing pure plays, it might be something like, 15 billion, 20 billion, you know, not, not a really, really high number. So for someone to say that the entire 3D, uh, 3D printing industry could not be worth, you know, more than $20 billion or more than $30 billion in some kind of future just, just seems kind of ridiculous. So it's even worse than that. They'd have to, they'd have to say that there's no way you can actually justify this being worth more than $5 billion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
or, or 10 or like something way less because you gotta have a you gotta have a buffer too on that you can't just like barely be in a bubble it's got to be like really obvious mm -hmm. right five billion bucks i mean come on yeah <laughs> some of these fang stocks will sneeze and then lose five billion dollars in market yeah. cap. you know yeah that could be like a a, a one minute you know a one minute volatility like the price could be five billion dollars different at you know 245 and then be five billion dollars more at 246. And yeah tesla on a typical day will fluctuate in, in the total market cap of all of, like the 3d pretty yeah <laughs> not, not all of them but like the big ones yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh so that's kind of funny well and gen then genomics i think is, is is another good example right it's like okay if if kathy is right and we start to do this regularly these companies are worth what they're worth now, if not a heck of a lot more. Yeah. Um, it, it's not terribly challenging. What would you say is one of the more challenging steps or should we just take it step by step? Yeah. Um, one of the more, more challenging steps for me is, well, this isn't explicitly one of the steps, but, but something I'm thinking of is a lot of these technologies aren't new, right? So a lot of these genomics, you know, companies and these 3D, comp 3D printing companies are not new. But one thing that's important in a bubble is that mentality of people thinking, okay, this time is different. This time the technologies are actually going to be able to, uh, you know, to reach a widespread audience. This time these technologies are actually going to be profitable. So it's kind of hard to, to realize, okay, are we at that point where this time is actually different and that these technologies are at that inflection point? Um, where they're going to change the world or where they're actually going to be really, really massive companies. Um, and that goes into part of the psychology. How do we get, you know, at what point can we determine that, that these narratives are strong enough that we can actually feel, okay, this time is different. This time they're actually, you know, they're ready to run up for good reason. Great question. Uh, I would say that that's in the realm of, should I invest in this stock? because now is the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas the bubble question is more, is there a scenario where this is the time? Mm -hmm. And so the bubble question is really one that's, it's very hard to prove that something's in a bubble, right? Because all you're saying is that there's a, there's a decent possibility, even if it's like unlikely, but there's a material probability that this time it's different and that these particular technologies are really valuable and they're gonna take off. Now, whether or not they do, that's a totally different question. You cannot be in a bubble, but still be in a really bad security that's gonna sit around for years not doing anything. Like a lot of these 3D printing stocks have been extremely painful to hold for a long, like I, I, I wasn't part of that group. I We first started getting into 3D printing stocks in the beginning of uh, 2020. So we weren't part of this group, but I don't think they were in a bubble three years ago, but it was still pretty early and it was pretty painful to be sitting there with the S&P up like what in the past three years, what's the S&P done? 150, 180%? Yeah. Meanwhile, a lot of these stocks in, in these innovation spaces either stagnated or slowly just, you know, went down until, until very recently. Yeah. So, so I don't think like, we're not saying for sure. Okay. Now's the time. I mean, we think so, 
But to say that it's in a bubble, I think is objectively wrong mm -hmm. because there is a, a material and we would say highly probable, but there's a material, a material probability that these technologies are gonna do well mm -hmm. in the fairly near term. Um, yeah. Uh, what's another one? So the first one is price appreciation. That one's really obvious, yeah. right? Uh, next one is review changes in the market for evidence of regime change. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's really important because if the world's changed in some way, it becomes difficult to look at the historical prices of a security. And if they ran up a lot to say it's in a bubble, mm -hmm. if something changed about the world, then you have to assess that change in order to see whether or not it could justify the change in price. So genomics is a is a good example there where, well, these companies played a huge role in helping to save the planet by delivering, not save the planet. I mean, you know, it, it this really wasn't the 1917 pandemic, but doing a lot to help us to very expeditiously, uh, expeditiously wrap our heads around this sequence, uh, sequence of genome for COVID uh, develop a vaccine, that was huge, right? Um, so I think that that's, that's part of that regime change is a lot of money going into the space, a lot of recognition of the value of this technology, right? Uh, a lot of brilliant minds working on it. Um, and then the same thing with 3D printing. Um, DeFi tech would be another one where there are uh, just a tremendous number of very useful decentralized applications in that space that are adding value to people that didn't exist two years ago. So you see a big run up in the price, but was there some kind of regime change? Yeah, there's huge regime change. The, the most exciting, innovative, decentralized application on Ethereum was CryptoKitties in 2017. <laughs> you know, so there's huge regime change. Um, okay, what's another one here? Define fundamentals. Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to be very specific to each and every security that you're looking at. But let's look at the other side of this, shall we? Like Ford. Okay. Ford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you guys see that chart? Someone help me. Someone <laughs> tell me why that's not just the perfect example of a bubble. So I've, I've actually got a question about that. So I guess one of the, the criticisms, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that you're seeing with this is that the price of, of Ford stock is higher now, despite electric vehicles reaching so many more households and despite electric vehicles just, you know, taking over a lot of market share. But could it be argued that the drive up in liquidity in markets generally is, is maybe what's pushing Ford stock up? And so how do we compare it to pre-pandemic levels when there's just so much more mar uh, money in the markets right now and so many more people investing and trading in the, in the stock market? So how do we make that comparison? Um, has there been a regime change as far as liquidity in the market that maybe is the driver of these prices? So liquidity can cause a regime change, but liquidity is not a fundamental that determines the you know, present value of the future cash flows of Ford as a company. Mm -hmm. 
So liquidity can cause the price of Ford to go up, but the fact that people have more cash on hand, unless you have a you know a strong thesis that a lot of that's going to go to Ford, that's not that's not something that's really changing that calculation, right? That calculation is a function of what your discount rate is, their business model, uh, revenue growth, margins, competitors, changes in behavior. So what's changed about Ford fundamentally, right? Because li liquidity is not that. Liquidity mm -hmm. is definitely a cause. Liquid liquidity is the primary cause. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the main you know, article of the week is, is saying that liquidity is the primary driver of, of uh, liquidity-induced bubbles, mm -hmm. right? Um, why do we think that? Everything has changed about fundamentals for, for these companies in the broader stock market, especially the S&P, over the past year and a half, right? Ever since COVID, we've had pandemics, uh, waves going up and down. We've had changes in presidencies, right? Changes in the political power structure. We've had changes in, in, in proposed tax policies, uh, changes in consumer behavior, lockdowns, reopenings all that it hasn't made a bit of difference in the growth rate of the s p 500. the s p 500 has continued to go up at pretty much the same rate month over month over month for a year at the fastest rate on record going back to spies creation back in 1993 and frankly if we went back even further i don't think it'd matter i'm pretty sure that's a record why? Everything else has changed except one thing, and that's liquidity. There is so much money, and that money continues to flow. And even as we taper, that cash is still on balance sheet, and we're just slowing the rate at which more money comes in. But all the liquidity is still there, right? That's the one unchanging factor. So you can call bullshit on every single talking host on CNBC and all the, you know, the, the Twitter accounts talking about, oh, look at the impact of this macro thing, blah, 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 inflation scare, interest rates, all the other narratives that went into trying to explain the S&P 500, they're all wrong. Because the S&P 500 kept doing the same thing when all those other factors were changing, except this one factor this one factor is incredibly powerful because this one factor is basically how much money people have sitting around it's really important right and if people have a lot more money sitting around and they have a lot more time to sit around thinking about it they're going to put it in markets and the s p is diversified enough such that the the you know, movement from one narrative to another narrative, you know, whether or not you're doing the FANG defensive play or whether or not you're doing the value or growth or there's enough in there that it doesn't really matter. Uh, it was picking up on all that. So all, all what you see in the, all the volatility across all these different markets, that's not really macro. It's just narratives and and what's the 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 big trade the momentum trade and where the psychology is sending people's liquidity they're sending it around but the s p 500 is diversified enough that it didn't really matter it just kept going up because the the 
the underlying mechanism of what's really happening is more and more money just kind of pushing pushing up on risk assets. That's important because, man, there's been a whole lot of talk over the past year and a half about everything. Really the past year, uh, I'd say. I mean, because a year and a half ago, that was the big plummet. But, you know, maybe four or five months after that, that was when people first started talking about uh, bubbles. I don't know. I guess Stanley Druckenmiller was like the first out of the gate. That was May, right? That was like two months after the bottom. But but realistically, I'd say it's it's been the past year. And man, that's been relentless. A 50 versus 200 day moving average difference of an average of 8% is enormous. During the strongest bull markets over the past decades, you know, that was 5%. Um, it's a straight line. <laughs> it actually is, yeah. And that's that's in one of the charts you showed. It's It's that straight resistance line that's been getting tagged over and over and it just keeps going it just has shown no signs of stopping. That doesn't mean that it won't. I mean, we could very well get corrections there, but it won't change the, um, it doesn't change the, the reality of, of, like, what can we say definitively? One is that basically all these other narratives trying to explain it over the past year that involve things that were changing or wrong because if they were changing, it wasn't explaining what's happening with the S&P. That's really important. And the only factor I can think of, the only one that's powerful enough, important enough, that would drive that, like the, the Cape's almost at 40. It hasn't happened since the dot-com bubble, right? So, so we're definitely looking at higher valuations, right? Um, what's the driver? I think that's the only one. And if that's the only one, that doesn't mean you can't get corrections in the S&P 500. So notice how the logic there is helping identify the cause. But just because the logic identifies the cause doesn't mean that stocks can't go down. That's, that's not what that means. It means that we're in a period historically where on net, households, corporates, small businesses in the United States, and really this is like more of a global thing, but especially in the US, are flush with cash tons of it, more than they know what to do with it. And they're certainly not buying more cars. I don't know if you guys heard Kathy Wood talking in her, in her, in her chat a couple days ago, but she's pointing out the same thing that we were saying when we started shorting Ford and GM and these oil stocks three weeks ago. No, no, people are not gonna start buying more cars. People are not gonna start driving more than they did before the pandemic. You wanna look for regime change? This is like a slam dunk. People are not going to be doing more of these activities. Um, they're going to be doing less of them. And so it's going to be very, very challenging to try to justify Ford being at such a high valuation, especially since they lost so much money. They lost a lot of money. Like whatever difference in valuation you see with Ford, tag on top of that the fact that they were hemorrhaging money before and they had to take out you know, a lot of loans just to survive right? Uh, but those losses, those are still sitting there on the balance sheet for everybody that's buying that stock. So not only are people buying fewer cars generally, not only are they dealing with the issues with chip shortages, we elected a democratic presidency, right? They're pushing for green energy, 
uh, Ford is even more dependent on gas guzzling SUVs and trucks than GM, like very, very dependent. They don't hardly have any, any small sedan cars left, basically. The only one they got that's like a car is the Mustang. Um, so they're behind on all that. And then if they're going to compete, you could say, oh, but electric vehicles, maybe they're ahead in that space. We've talked about this. This is going to be even less of a margin business because they're so simple, 10% of the moving parts. On top of that, people care less about what you drive or frankly, like the, the house that you live in and a lot of that stuff, like we're moving digitally. So a lot of the like prestige that you get for these things that people normally use to signal where they're at in the social hierarchy, they're less valuable now than they were before the pandemic. You want to talk about regime change? That's another one. I mean, the number of hits I can do on Ford, it's a long list. I'm just getting started. They're, they're extremely dependent on China in order for them to actually obtain their uh, growth targets. Basically, it's we're going to somehow succeed and beat Tesla and EVs, and we're going to miraculously manage to get autonomous driving, even though we don't have any data, and we're going to sell a bunch of gas-guzzling cars to China, even though China is increasingly trying to pull back its dependence on the United States and is getting radically more nationalistic and supporting their own businesses. And the people there don't like the U.S. very much, like less and less. Some of it's for good reasons, some of it's not. This is ridiculous. All right, I'll pause for a second. Sorry. I just, I, I love this short. This is so beautiful. It's great. It sounds like poetic justice, honestly, if it works out. Um, basically, we'll I mean, the main thing, too, is that I think people overestimate Ford's capacity to catch up to Tesla with producing electric vehicles and also producing a, a product that matches the quality of Tesla, um, especially in their battery technology. I, don't, I think Tesla is way ahead of what anything uh, Ford could possibly create in the next few years with battery technology. And also uh, Elon Musk says this a lot, prototyping is one thing, but then actually going into mass production is another thing. So definitely, I really don't see, even though electric vehicles aren't, really a high margin operation, they're still going to be the norm, right? Like uh, basically internal combustion engines are going to be finished soon since most governments want to set up to be only EVs. But the point is um, produce, mass produce, being getting to a point where you can mass produce this entirely new product, electric vehicles will be a challenge for Ford. And I don't think many people are realizing that because they assume that since Ford is a bigger name, they can catch up. But I think they'll be in for a rude awakening. Oh boy. Yeah, there's a, I'm trying to find, there was another article that I wrote about changes in behavior and how we're just driving less. Oh yeah, transportation disruption. I actually wrote this several, uh, let's see, like over two years ago. People are driving less. Um, they've been driving less. Um, since like 2005, uh, falling demand for vehicles. I'm, I'm looking at the article right now. Uh, I know this is a little bit off of uh, off of our scheduled, but I, I think that this is this is this gets to the depth of our discussions on conviction. Like, why do I sound like I have conviction on this? I mean, I've been looking at this this regime change 
and and transportation for well ever since I discovered Tesla. That was quite interesting. Falling demand for vehicles, global auto sales, falling demand for vehicles. But there were a bunch of different interesting factors leading to this. Um, so why is auto demand uh, falling? Mobility as a service. What does that mean? It means that it's just easier and easier to not actually buy a car. Uh, and that's helpful because something like 95% of the time that a car exists, it's not actually being driven. So the more we're using cars as a service, the more we're actually using the cars better, uh, more efficiently, so we don't have to buy as many cars because they're not just sitting around degrading in our parking lots, right? Or in our garages. Um, Micro-mobility. All these scooters, right? Just, just, uh, and also the push. This is, uh, I, I, sometimes I, I, I uh, make fun of the Democrats and stuff for some of the things that they do because rather it's, it's rather frustrating that they don't understand how economics works and they don't seem to care about incentives very much. But we all should love this planet more. And they are so right about this. This is one of the areas where government needs to be involved is helping to make it easier for things like micro-mobility. Make it easier for people to not own a car, and they're doing it. And that, and, and we didn't know that, that they would be in control, right? Um, again, looking, looking at that Ford, you know, that, that chart, what changed, right? This is another one. Micro-mobility, it's just so much easier and increasingly easy for people to not need to own a vehicle, right? Um, urban is, uh, by the way, I wrote this before the pandemic, right? A lot of these things were accelerated by the pandemic big time. I barely drive. I don't know about you guys. Do you guys drive much? We still do drive quite a bit. So maybe things might take a while to catch up with, say Panama, which is a bit of a developing nation. Yeah, it's, it's different out here than it is there. I mean, we do have things like these, uh, you know these scooters like the the bird scooters and all and whatnot but it's not it's not the same as it is in many states in the u.s um lyft and uber exist but they're not used as much um so it is different it is i think it's going to take a little longer for things to to kind of trend in the same way that they have in the u.s um and i think that's probably fair to say for a lot of you know emerging markets and developing nations yeah no, that's fair. I get that. We're about, it feels like we're about three to four years behind the U.S. in many ways with these kinds of things. Like you guys, when you guys got Uber and Lyft and those things started to really take off, it took about three to four years for it to actually come over here. And then same thing with like the scooters and whatnot. So there's like a, a bit of a lag there. Well, I would be surprised if it takes that long. I think part of that's another thing. Uh, one of the other names that I, I thought about having besides what we're going to switch to was evolutionomics. I almost went with that as a name because I felt like so much of, of understanding the world today is about trying to adapt to an increasingly faster and faster pace of change. I mean, the speed at which entrepreneurs 
anywhere in the world can seize on a successful business model in the United States. And I, even though there's been issues with, with Uber and Lyft, these are many, many billions of dollars of worth of market cap. Like they were a success by any measure. Um, to, to come to other countries and to have the connections, to, to have those meetings and to, to, to make it happen faster. My goodness. I just, um, so anyway, it's a long list of reasons why transportation is getting disrupted. Uh, so if you guys want to take a look at that, feel free later. But um, there's a reason why transportation is a huge part of this short position. Like we've been preparing for this. And now it's just beautiful. Like we didn't think we'd be able to get in a short position at, at such high valuations. Um, that's quite that 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 came as a result of the uh, of Arc, you know, continuing to tank longer than we thought, and then you know jumping in early April and then holding on and and you know doubling down for another month and a half was quite painful. I guess, I don't know, I didn't really feel very, it, we lost money doing that, right? I guess I could say that. But it was very useful because it was like, what's happening? What's happening in the market? That was another piece of that puzzle is how much of the of, of financial markets have become a bit of a casino and people just doing that thing that the TikTok, uh, the TikTok guy we talked about was doing. Yeah, we just hold it till it starts to go down, then we sell it, yeah. <laughs> so, so super complicated, right? Yeah. Yes, that's and about this whole this whole topic about um the the stock market becoming a casino in some aspects um wasn't one of your reasons for selling off a lot of your stocks back in january Did, didn't that have something to do with the whole gamestop and amc frenzy that was going on well that was a short squeeze um that was the that was the headline news underlying the what was really happening broadly, which was a short squeeze. And we were playing some of that. I think one of the securities that we bought, it was a very small amount, but we bought like the, the over-the-counter security that was uh, essentially holding the assets of Blockbuster Video. It was post-bankruptcy, but it had a huge, I was just doing what other folks, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is, what, this is the game we're going to play. Okay, so I'm going to buy a small amount of stock in a, in, a, in a basket of securities that have huge uh, uh, short interest, because after GameStop hits the news, of course, there's a bunch of Reddit people that are going to go around searching for short interest, and then we're going to buy that stuff. So that shot up like, I don't know, 300% in like a week or whatever. We didn't own very much. I don't even think we talked about it. There are some tweets about it. <laughs> you could find our little list of... Uh, these but but that was really important because that that's the kind of thing that happens like with a blow off top you've got you've got a lot of crappy securities that people had to buy because they had to get out of the way right because they didn't they, they they probably didn't take our approach to shorting like shorting is extremely dangerous you know that's why that article is so long you just have to be very careful but yeah you can lose everything shorting some tiny security so people were just buying back these like crazy. But of course, as a result, I think that that really was the blow off top. I think that that was, that was the point of pure irrationality. That, that was being driven by a market mechanism. That, so your point earlier about, well, couldn't you justify, ju justify Ford because of liquidity? And I'm saying, well, no, liquidity can be the cause of a bubble, but it doesn't actually change the fundamentals of the stock, right? 
Same thing with people selling off all these or buying back all these securities that have huge short interest. Fear of, of, of losing your shirt because of these shorts is, is real. That was the cause of these securities shooting up so much. Didn't change the fundamentals of the stocks at all. So that would be another mechanism one could look for to say that that's an irrationally priced security for sure. Well, so there's actually a question on Zoom that, that I guess would be pretty relevant to this. Um, and it's by Cur Curious Soul on Zoom. And they say liquidity changes the discount rates, therefore changes the discounted cash flows for Ford. All else equal increases Ford's, Ford's valuation. So in that sense, um, I just like to hear your thoughts on this statement. And uh, with, with the increase in liquidity, does that affect the way you think about shorting? Does it make it more dangerous to, to tap short positions when we're in such a strong bull market where uh, prices generally can go up because of liquidity? Should definitely be careful shorting in this environment. I agree with Curious Soul. Mm -hmm. This is you got to be really careful. But keep in mind that we're running a long short portfolio with this, so we're offsetting the shorts that we have. We're not shorting our, we're not hedging our whole portfolio. We're hedging a leveraged long position essentially in QQQ. So that's how we get exposure to the Fang stocks rather than taking our capital and just buying it, we're essentially use, using like a, uh, the equivalent of, of like, a, it, it's cheaper to do that. If you're taking a leveraged position, we found a cheap way to do that. But by doing it with an ETF, we can do it very cheaply, right? But we don't wanna take a leveraged long position in the market because doing that is really dangerous. So we wanna offset the market risk. How do we do that? I feel very comfortable offsetting the long position in the queues against value, especially for GM oil stocks and some of these like essentially ARK invest bad ideas. We're doing the same thing with that report that we do with a lot of their stuff. We basically take their reports and then we try to do better. And so far we've done pretty good. So we went through their bad ideas, built out our own thesis across this and, and picked the best uh, shorts. So yeah, be very careful shorting. Um, the way we're doing that is not the way that most people short. Um, I don't buy the argument that it changes the discount rate uh, in a good way. If anything, it should actually be changing the discount rate in a bad way. And the reason why is because all this liquidity is creating inflation risks. All the money spending, all the fiscal spending, all the monetary support to allow that fiscal spending all this is creating very real inflationary risks. So if this ends up changing the discount rate, it's gonna do so in a way that should actually lower Ford's valuation. But the initial impact on rates has been a reduction in rates because of all this money trying to find somewhere to go. That's what's really, if you wanna know why, why, why would somebody buy bonds? at 1.3% for 10 years with CPI prints above five. Why? That's why. There's so much money. So yeah, that's, a, that's another like indicator of what's going on. But that doesn't mean that the true discount rate should be 1.3%. That's really important. It's like, what is the true discount rate? You know, we, we've built a, 
the whole idea of taking treasury bonds and then adding a risk premium to it as a way to get the discount rate that's a fairly new concept and it's also made up somebody just made that up They're like oh this is how we're going to get discount rates like there's nothing written in the stars about how to value securities it says that that's the way you discount future cash flows and the more the feds manipulating the the underlying interest rate of the treasury of treasury bonds the more that approach to trying to figure out the true discount rate becomes total horseshit they basically monopolized indirectly you know the corporate bond market they didn't really monopolize that's not the right word but they backstopped it in a way that allowed moral hazard to flow into that space like never before right the 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 degree to which the fed is essentially without saying so they're essentially doing the same thing that they did during world war ii which was you know pegging the interest rate except then it was explicit now it's implicit they're not actually doing it implicit like explicitly but they're effectively doing it by flooding the market with money right and if and if rates ran up too fast then they would come in and they would they would try to make it more stable so they're setting that rate so as an investor why would you use that fake non-market rate to actually determine the discount rate for future cash flows for some company. You should be using, if you want to use an objective measure, use your expectations of, uh, of, of what you think inflation is going to be. And then on top of that, add a risk premium. That's what you should do. And right now, break-evens are at, you can't even trust break-evens because they're also buying tips. So break-even inflation expectations are also something that is being heavy, heavily influenced by the Fed. That's not a market rate anymore, right? So, so what is the true inflation expectation over the next 10 years? Um, you have to actually use your head now. You're not able to just take these market rates anymore. I think you'd have to say, you can look at survey data, but even that's not going to be helpful. Like people haven't, people don't remember what it was like to be in that environment. Maybe 4%, maybe, but that's enormous. 4% is enormous. Like to get the difference that you get on a discounted future cash flow for a company like Ford, that's, I don't know, most people would think it's going to be around for 50 years. I don't. Uh, but if you think that, and you and you change your discount rate from 1.3% plus like a 2% risk premium to 4% plus a 2% risk premium I mean, like the difference in price is like it's like a 70% drop in the future cash flows so yeah i don't i don't think that just cuz there's more liquidity that might be a record in terms of how long it took me to answer a question but i don't think that uh just because there's more liquidity that that therefore means that there's a lower discount rate. No way. If anything, it should be higher because of inflation. So then my question would be, what do you think is driving up the prices of these kinds of assets? Is it just investors failing to realize the, the change in regime? Is it, um, is it just irrational investing? What is driving up these prices right now? Oh man, 
it's it's the new uh there was that talk in may may 13 you guys did an incredible job on that video by the way that was really fun thank you thanks we're gonna we're gonna be doing a lot of fun stuff like this by the way we're gonna we're gonna take some of our material we're gonna seize on moments and you guys using your magic can can create this these really cool insights and put it out there for the world uh I'm so excited about what we're gonna do. This is so great, um, and I love the fact that 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 folks like James and 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 other folks are joining this brain trust to help us do that because I think that this is gonna be uh, this is just gonna be a growing hive mind of of ridiculously curious individuals that don't have to have a background in the space. All they need to do, know how to do is how to think critically and not be afraid. That's pretty much it. Um, but uh, in terms of what's happening, so there was a there was a talk. The talk we did in, on May thirteenth. That was when I was calling bottom, and I you guys had that clip of me saying, "We're pretty sure this is the bottom, and we got a lot riding on it." You know that one, right? Well, so later in that talk, uh, it was pretty it was pretty concise, like I normally am. It was only like an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was talking about what's the change in the mechanism? What's driving prices? Um, and what happens in a world where people have a lot more free time and way more cash? And a lot of it they got in the mail from the government. They didn't earn it. It was just, ta-da, here's money for you. I mean, and it wasn't just that. It was like enhanced unemployment that was keeping people from re-entering. Notice how the unemployment rate tanked like 0.5% the month after a lot of these states stopped doing enhanced unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. People were getting paid money they did not earn to sit at home and they couldn't spend money. And, and they're increasingly finding out that they don't actually need to spend as much money because a lot of the stuff that they used to spend money on isn't as valuable in a world that's mostly digital and increasingly so. So what are they doing? What are they doing? And you can see it all over the place. Part of it, you can see it in option prices. It was the speculation. There's an enormous amount of speculation. This is a financial markets went from a 5% uh, weight on daily trading of retail investors as measured by like smaller trades. There's a bunch of ways you can measure it, but this is one to 20%. It hasn't really come down. Sometimes it's higher, right? And these people don't care. On, on the whole, they don't really care. They're not showing up on IntuityCon podcasts in the middle of the night talking about regime changes and discount rates. This is not what they're doing. What are they doing? The TikTok guy. Mm -hmm. They're buying the stuff that's going up and they're gonna hold it until guess what? It starts to go down. And that, getting back to the article about uh, bubbles, you wanna talk about reflexivity? You want to talk about a, re, a self reinforcing narrative? That one is a pure play. The more people that buy into that, the more it becomes true. So, pretty soon, you have whole segments of the market. NFTs is one right now, value stocks is another one that's happening right now. Before that, ARC had its run. That was the that was same thing. It was, we don't care about what it is, we're all going to hop into it until it starts to go down. Securities that had high short interest, 
that had a run to. It's just going to keep happening. So the question is, which one is going to be next? What's going to be next? What are all these people with all this money, with way more time on their hands, and have recently started to trade? Like a lot of these folks never even bothered investing until the pandemic. But now, now, now they're all experts, right? What are they going to do next? What's the next big one? Hmm, 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 hmm. Hmm, let me see. Well, let's go through our assets, shall we? Okay. Gold is boring, and the number of people that care about it are either dead or slowly dying. Okay, next. Um, let's look at value stocks. Really, really expensive, like by just about any measure. And they're also easy to value. So the number of people coming to their senses, they're going to come to their senses quicker because they're so consistent in terms of their cash flows, dividends, all that, right? That's not, you're not going to, that's not going to be the next big run. We're not going to have another big run in value, right? Again, get inside the mindset of folks that are just, they don't care. They just want to know what's going to go up a whole lot, right? Bonds are boring. That's not going to happen, right? That's the money flowing there is not because of retail pushing up prices where they're like, oh yeah, treasury bonds, going to get rich quick. So that's not going to happen. Okay. What else we got? Emerging markets. And a lot of these folks I don't even think are terribly interested in investing outside the United States. It's not very exciting. It is to me, what I see happening in emerging markets is incredibly exciting. And it's a beautiful story. I love the way software is transforming the world and evening things uh, for, for hardworking people everywhere. Not the TikTok, keep the TikTok guy in your head, right? Right? What's, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? You know, just sign up and uh, subscribe to Kathy Wood and <laughs> all hail Queen Kathy. Oh man, I mean, come on. Is this not odd? Like everything is expensive right now or boring, except the one thing that's like still way down and everything about like that whole space in terms of the reality just keeps getting better and better and better. Because when you have a really fast growth rate, six months of depressed prices that whole time, basically like what what's the average growth rate for ARK Invest stocks? Do you guys know? Off the top of your head? No, I'm not sure. No, I, I wouldn't have that information off the top of my head. I think it's like I think it's like thirty percent. So these stocks, in terms of price to sales, just got fifteen percent cheaper just after six months, ignoring the price action. Right? And man, like you don't get better narratives than Kathy Woods. You know, there's no there are no better narratives than technology. There are except maybe crypto. Crypto, NFTs, and, and DeFi, I think maybe better. Uh, so that's where I think they're going. I think that this is it. I think that this is the, the, the bubble system, the, all the liquidity, all the big gains people got on value, you know, all the money people are making on these NFTs, right? All the money people made in their bonds, which like bonds went up a whole lot too recently, right? Over the past, like basically since the end of March, right? or uh, late, yeah, 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 yeah. All that money, and, and the Fed's still buying, keep in mind. They're, they're, they're thinking about tapering, they're thinking about slowing the, 
slowing the speed at which more money comes in. But incomes are rising, right? Unemployment's falling. The economy's, the economy's doing great. Right? People are quitting jobs at a record rate, like not a record like for the pandemic. I don't think it's like record ever, but people are extremely confident right now. They're quitting jobs. What does that say about willingness to take risk? People are saying things like, uh, people don't want to buy ARC because they just people just don't have the risk tolerance right now. <laughs> but they'll buy people... NFTs up to the moon and sneakers. People were saying the same thing about crypto, about Bitcoin, Ethereum, when it was, you know, when Bitcoin was at 29,000, everyone was getting scared and then suddenly it broke out and now everyone's buying altcoins, people are buying Solana, they're buying Doggycoin, they're buying everything. And um, the sentiment can shift so fast. I actually had a question. Would you say that 20% that you estimated for retail investors, is there potential for that number to go up um, in terms of markets and stocks? I don't know if, if uh, so how they define this is, is important to answer that question. So essentially these brokers, they, they pick some arbitrary number in terms of the size of the trade and then they denote that as retail. And the distribution of it is like, there's a whole lot of trading that happens in terms of the number of trades. Like somebody executed a trade for X dollars. There's a lot of that because there's a lot of people that have less money that do some trading. And then there's varying sizes of larger uh, uh, traders. Some of those are individuals. They just have more money, right? And then you have some institutions that are like really, really big and they, they'll, they'll, they'll like do block trades on, on, on uh, uh, sometimes in dark pools just because it's easier for them to execute the trade. So I don't think it would, I don't think it'd be easy for, for retail investors to actually do more than they did during the pandemic. I just don't because a lot of people like weren't even working that much, you know, under lockdown with very little to do and savings rates shot up so high. Like you saw those savings rates in the article that I published. I mean, they went yeah. down and they went back down fast too. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I mean, cause we went back to normal, but they still saved all that money. It's yeah. still there, yeah. right? They're that's the, that's the rate of change. Went down. So in order to get that level even higher and without changing the definition, I don't know. I think that I think we might have maxed it out during the pandemic, but but I don't think that that necessarily needs to be the driving force. The driving force is, uh, well, essentially, you know, what's been happening. I mean, I don't really see anything that's going to cause people, investors generally, without some unforeseen shock, to start to become more uh, more afraid. I don't see, like, what is the backdrop that we're in? The financial crisis happened 13 years ago. And for the past 12 years, the stock market generally in the United States has been going up, 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 right? And there are a lot of folks that have been sitting out of this the whole time. And they're frustrated. You know, there are spouses that are angry with each other. They don't really talk about it. They don't bring it up. They're like, why didn't husband Benny 
put his money in the stock market like Grandpa Joe said, you know? Like, that's all over the place. There are a lot of the, you know, and, and, uh, that's, when, when that goes on that long, that's, there's a reason why bull markets don't go on forever. Uh, part of the reason is that you have changes in the psychology of people that cause some kind of blow off top if things keep getting better. Because the longer you go without things being really bad, the more people forget that bad things can happen, right? So the bond market's a really big one. That's why you see such frivolous and stupid investing in the bond markets because it's been working for 40 years, more mm -hmm. than 40 years. Well, buying and holding the S&P has been working for, for people in the United States for over a decade. That's a long, long time, right? And you can't even count the drop that happened during COVID, uh, during COVID because the Fed uh, moved in so fast that if you like were on you know on, on a three month cruise you like missed the whole thing, you know it was not a prolonged bear market that would cause people to feel real pain. Real pain was like post post dot com was pain, post crypto was pain, you know. When you actually come out of a bubble, it's painful. I would I would put that in the definition of bubble. Like it has to, the implosion has to last at least a year and probably more. So what was that? What happened with that? Well, to a lot of people, it was finally the Armageddon is going to happen. Oh, you know, all the gold bugs, right? All the folks who like the sovereign debt crisis and the dollar's going to implode and you know, all the fear mongering, like, you know, all these people, right? The pandemic was like their big moment, right? All the folks that have been making money while they weren't, were finally going to lose and they were going to get to be right. Mm -hmm. And then they were wrong almost instantly, right? So all that frustration, there's a ton of money sitting around on the sidelines for more than a decade getting frustrated and that's part of the reason why this thing keeps going up is that it's just we're, we're starting to see the beginnings of like some really long-term capitulation from folks that that just don't understand and pretended that they knew um and there's so much money that uh, this is not going to end well like this is this is not going to end well. Let's be clear. Like this this is uh this is unhealthy, right? Talking about bubbles is unhealthy, and a lot of people are going to get hurt. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not happy about that. I'm just, but it's a reality. So how do you how do you prepare for that? How do you plan for that? Um, that's what we're talking about right here, right now. How do you do that? Make sure you're not in one of these bubbles that's going to pop right away. Uh, that's one. And there just aren't even a lot of places left to invest that have good valuations other than some of these stocks that we're in. Like, this is like a safe haven now. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, it's incredible. Like, my mindset has shifted now. Like I, I used to think that maybe I was, when I first got into a lot of these disruptive innovation names, a, co a couple of them, like 3D printing genomics, I was a little bit hesitant. I liked Kathy Wood's um, 
narrative. It was compelling and interesting, but I still felt like I was a bit of a contrarian, like I was taking on a risk. Maybe I am gambling or something. But once I started like studying this more and like understanding the whole scheme of things, the whole scenario, like the nature of bubbles, especially helped me gain more understanding. I can see many ways in which these are a safer asset class to be in right now to protect ourselves from the potential burst of the bubble caused by all these value companies in S&P 500. So very interesting how like my views have changed. I'm not saying that I have all the answers yet. I'm very new to this, but like I am seeing the results of like uh, sitting down and reading up and digging deeper into what's going on, challenging my views every day. And um, definitely happy I, I got into this pos uh, position, even though at first I was a little doubtful. A big, a big difference is the growth rates. If you're in stuff like Ford or, uh, you know, oil stocks, like we're not going to be like trying to do more ice vehicles, right? We're not going to be trying to use more fossil fuels. Like if you're wrong on that, then you could be waiting forever. Whereas if you're, if you're in stocks that are growing really fast, then I think that that provides some buffer that helps me feel more confident because again, if you're looking at like an average growth rate of like, I don't, I don't know if it's 30%, but like a lot of the stocks that I'm looking at are saying that she expects within the next five years, 30% annualized. So I think you might okay. be, I think I did hear that in an interview. I think that that's her returns that she thinks um, we'd have to yeah. double check that, but just generally speaking, you're talking about companies that are growing really fast right? That helps. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, all this stuff's a real challenge. It's going to be way tougher later. Like if, if I'm right about the second tech bubble taking off, um, and so far that call seems to be correct. Although frankly, you know, it's, it's, this is really challenging stuff, right? Um, what's really going to be hard is when the valuations of these stocks get up to a point where they're pricing in what we expect. But now we're doing the bubble play. Now we're going, okay, how much more are people going to lose their shit over these companies? Yeah, that's, like the, that's the bubble premium discussion. How much? Because part of the reason why we're in this is because unlike these value stocks, these companies are almost impossible to price. So the degree to which people go beyond what's rational or reasonable, the ability to actually say objectively that those stocks are in a bubble using that thesis that we went through, that th those six steps, and most importantly, the last one, good luck. Good luck putting a number on that, right? That there's no scenario that like a CRISPR couldn't be worth more, whatever number, or that triple D 3D printing lungs. Well, what if they're able to do the heart next year? All of a sudden we don't have heart disease problems. Ta-da! You know, it's like that's, or uh, learn, uh, uh, stride. And like, let's say, let's say they go, 
if, if I'm right and, and, and more and more college, uh, like high school kids, especially are, are staying home, uh, essentially just trying to knock out this, uh, their, their requirements in high school using stride just very quickly. You know, you can basically turn a typical 12 hour high school work day into maybe three hours using their program and you don't have to drop out of school. You're just doing it virtually. You get this, you knock it out. You do exactly what you have to do. Basically nothing else. Then you get to do stuff like what my daughter's doing, you know? Um, what if that doubles? That's like almost nothing compared to the whole country though, because it's so small. So then the, the, the thought probably, goes, well, what if it goes up 10 times? What if 10% of the country starts doing stuff like that, right? Wow. Can't do that with a Ford. It's like, what if people just start to really love Ford trucks? <laughs> and they're just, oh, Mustang. Oh, it's like, no. He has 10 of them. <laughs> Not what if people just start buying like 10 trucks at a time? <laughs> it's just like, it's like a, you just can't, you know. Uh, anyway, well, this is fun. Uh, yeah, it's a great talk. Do we have any last questions from uh, from folks on um, on the Zoom or anything that we should take, or, or should we close it out? Um, I don't see any. I think those are. I think that's it. All right. Well, uh, hopefully, Kathy Wood sees our our email or our video before before they break out, because of course, once they break out, then everybody's going to want to talk to them again. So. You know they're not gonna want to hear from us but we'll try we don't really need them frankly because they put out everything publicly mm -hmm. so uh we're happy to just keep taking their research and then making it better and making more money for ourselves yeah. um but uh but i think that i think that they'd enjoy the conversation it uh, would be a lot of fun for sure well let's try yeah let's try let's uh everyone listening to this um like share retweet everything you can do let's let's get this knowledge to arc invest in their team and uh you'll get a lot more fun collaboration from from intuit econ and arc invest so to so help us out let's do it sounds great all right great all right guys awesome take, take care, care. Have, have a good night. night take care